momentous Sunday, and among the momentous decisions and discussions and deliberations, we're seeking unity. And we understand that Scripture, the Holy Bible, God's inspired word, emphasizes unity a lot. Last week, we looked at how Scripture, God's inspired word, is a source of unity and also a source of division in good ways and bad ways. This week, I'd like to say it gets easier, it gets more straightforward. This week, we look at not Scripture itself, but the faithful, at least seeking to be faithful, interpretation and application of the truths of God's Word in the enterprise historically called theology. Theology is study of God, but not just as a concept or as a formula or as a recipe, but the person of God who has character, purposes, objectives, a mission, that not only is God on, but he invites us, his people, into. And so seeking help, seeking assistance to forward unity of the church, we have theology as a source of unity. And theology as a source of division. In good ways and bad ways. Truth and holiness have a way of dividing. But so does strife and contention. And theology can delve into one or the other or sometimes both at the same time. So the purpose of theology, uh, Paul says something similar. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to say something similar to Titus about being faithful and pursuing truth but without being quarrelsome. He gives several verses to Timothy that outlines the true and God-prompted purpose of theological study, which he contrasts with those who engage in theology for wrong reasons, wrong-headed reasons, fruitless reasons, foolish reasons. Paul observes in 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 7 that there are people who study Scripture. I mean, they're studying the Bible. But the Bible study itself doesn't necessarily eventuate in fruitful, God-prompted, spirit-prompted truth, holiness, and mission. Sometimes that Bible study can divert into what Paul calls fruitless speculation or divisiveness or focusing, reinforcing focus on the minor as a major distraction as opposed to the major. Some of you see this and say, boy, that looks suspiciously like a slide from a seminary class, and full disclosure, it is. Uh, there's probably an, uh, an half an hour, hour's worth of material on each of these, which we're not going to do today. Got to actually enroll in a seminary class to get, uh, to get some of that. But uh, the thumbnail sketch version, good theology is supposed to promote truth. Good theology is supposed to promote Unity. 
Good theology is supposed to promote holiness. Good theology is supposed to promote the mission of God. Now fast forward 1900, 2000 years from the time that Paul wrote the letter to Timothy in which there already is theology being used for nefarious or at least strife-inducing divisive causes. Fast forward 1900, uh, 2000 years, we can observe that uh, the purpose of theology is to promote truth, the purpose of theology is to promote unity, but there is a conservative and a liberal deviation from this. Let's start with the conservative. That's Grace Bible Church, by the way. We're, we're the conservatives. <laughs> we're on the conservative side. Well, it can fall into the trap of pursuing truth to the exclusion of unity. That's a problem. There's a liberal progressive mistake as well. The liberal progressive proclivity is to be so concerned about unity that it can neglect the truth. The Goldilocks balance scripture sets forth is a pursuit of unity as we pursue truth. Goldilocks, that's actually a translation of the Hebrew. No, it's not. <laughs> But anyway, spirit-prompted theology, God's word-inspired, theological engagement not inspired, at best illumined, I mean, we hope for spirit indwelt, spirit-filled, prayerful, sincere, studied people will engage God's word with bona fide credibility of character and will be led by the Holy Spirit into truth. But when you're in the realm of theology, you're inherently in the realm of not inerrant, inspired truth directly from God, but hopefully illumined by the Holy Spirit but inherently prone to short-sightedness, fallibility, and even selfish motivations. You know, approaching God's word with a vested interest to come to a certain conclusion that you hope will be true, which biases your whole engagement. That can happen. In general, spirit-prompted theology yields harmony and unity in the truth it clarifies. Clarifies means to make clear, particularly to make clear, to give instruction as to just what decision to make, just what path to follow, just what objective to pursue in this particular contemporary context and time and situation. If there's division and strife and contention, now this is a point that's abundantly clear in scripture. If there is division, strife, and contention, Something is dreadfully wrong somewhere. 
Now, it could be that you have stubbornly, recalcitrantly, unrepentant persistence in error or unholiness or debauchery or, or uh, tolerating such. That could be the problem. Or you could have people that are, think they're pursuing the truth and righteousness, but are actually pursuing knowingly or unknowingly something else. So we looked at James 3 last time. This is where a sermon on James 3, 13 to 18 would also be long, but we already did that last week. We're not going to do it again this week. Maybe play the tape <laughs> from last week if you're interested in, in that point. But James 3 lays out the difference between the two wisdoms. They both claim to be wise and, and intelligent and giving analysis that guides us into what we should do. But one telltale sign of wisdom that's not actually from above is that it causes strife and division and contentiousness and often is motivated by someone trying to promote their own view or even their own selves. In other words, they have a vested interest to forward their agenda and often an agenda of promoting their own power or status or position or something. In the process of church discipline, that's the context of this familiar passage. So think about what church discipline is. You have someone who's out of line. And Jesus says, well, what do you do if there's someone that's out of line? First thing you do, it's very consistent with Matthew 7. You know, how do, how do you, in a godly way, remove the speck from someone else's eye? That's what church discipline, that's the process of Matthew 18 is supposed to do. Well, step one, remove the telephone pole from your own eye. That's, that's step one. But Jesus never actually rebukes or condemns uh, or steers away from trying to remove a speck from someone else's eye. But how do you want specks removed from your own eye? Well, with gentleness and some care and skill. Matthew 18. So you've got someone out of line. What do you do? Well, you first approach them privately. If they won't listen, then take a couple people with you. If they still won't listen, they're stubbornly, recalcitrantly, unrepentant in it. Well, then you may have to take them before the whole church and take them under discipline. It's at the end of that that Jesus says this. If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, where as few, of, as few as two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. Now, let's read this in context. This is not Linda and me agreeing together. It would be good if we had a million dollars. We agree on that. So we have come to agreement, let's go to Atlantic City and carry this. See, it will be done. See, it says it will be done. Now, this is, you're wrestling with what to do with someone who's gone off. Rest assured, Jesus says. It's consistent with the end of Matthew 28. I'm with you. Whereas few as two or three of you are in consensus. Now, this isn't two or three that agree over against the 200 who do not agree. That's not what this is saying. Where as few as two or three have come to consensuses, this seems to be, as we apply all the truths and balance redemptive grace with righteous justice, 
Remember those phrases from last week? You know, they can stand in tension. So we wrestle through, this seems to be what we should do. You can proceed with confidence, Jesus says. I'm with you. And then we get through the theology of the rest of the New Testament. The way Jesus is present is through the presence and leading and prompting of the Holy Spirit. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, that you may be made complete in same mind and in same judgment. I did a little study on being of the same mind, being in agreement. There's literally close to 100 passages. Literally close to 100 passages. I picked one and I ran out of PowerPoint slide. (laughs) But there are literally close to 100 passages that emphasize pursue agreeability, pursue unity, pursue consensus building, bringing to agreement the opposite of sowing division, sowing disagreement, sowing trouble, sowing strife. Well, all right. But surely... There are instances in which good people disagree. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, there's got to be a time or two in the Bible (laughs) where people didn't just agree on everything. How'd the Holy Spirit handle that? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) It's actually a great theological, biblical, hermeneutical question. One big example, probably among the clearest, is the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. I'm going to spend just a little bit of time here in Acts 15. In Acts 15, you have at least two, maybe more, but at least two sets of prayerful, sincere, Bible-believing, Bible-affirming, Jesus Christ recognizing, Jesus Christ following, resurrection affirming groups of believers. They're all orthodox, but they have a major disagreement on this question. Now the question at issue, I'm not going to get into the weeds this morning. That would be the rest of the sermon. I don't want to do that. I just want to look at how the Holy Spirit handled it. How, what was the process that they used? But what do we do with these Gentile Christians? You know, these, these new converts from the Gentile regions. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, particularly if the only Bible you have at the time, God's holy inspired inerrant word, the only Bible you have at the time is Genesis to Malachi. This is really a tough question. It's not an easy question. So it's not, well, simple. I mean, we know the answer now. So you go, well, simple. Just accept him in. What, what's the problem? No. If all I have is Genesis 17, 9 to 14, circumcision sounds like an absolute. It sounds Permanent. 
It actually says an everlasting covenant. If I pay any attention at all to how God responded when Moses failed to circumcise his sons in Exodus 4, I think, and if I look at what God says in Exodus, uh, in Ezekiel 44, 7 to 9, I think God takes circumcision really seriously. And you had a group of Jewish believers who said, we affirm Jesus as the Christ. We recognize Jesus as the Messiah. We recognize that he's the reigning king. But come on, people, these folks need to be circumcised. Look, I've got chapter and verse right here. So how the Holy Spirit handle it? Now, I could say, how did the church handle it? I could say, how did the apostles, the disciples, the elders handle it? But the reason, part of the reason I say, how did the Holy Spirit handle it, is because the language of the Holy Spirit leading to the final conclusion is actually the language used in Acts 15. Did they all go into a meditation, contemplative exercise? And in a state of trance, a mystical trance, oh, it just occurred to me. Now I know what the Holy Spirit is leading. There's no record of a single lavender candle being lit. Not a single breathing exercise being done. Not that there's not a time and place for some of those meditational, contemplative exercises, but that's actually, no. Not what Acts 15 did. Did they respond to this point of biblical debate, biblical disagreement, theological differences of view? Saying, just come on together, let's sing a few praise songs, join hands and come on now, just hug it out. <laughs> Actually, no again. Well, what did the Holy Spirit do? How was it handled? The leadership of the church came together to look into the matter. The apostles and elders. That's verse 6. Verse 7. I mean, does that now settle it? Now that we got the apostles and elders on it, okay, bam, here's the answer. Acts 15, 7. After there had been much debate, after there had been much Debate. Well, that, that sounds like differences of view being pitted against one another and this person seeing this point and this person seeing this line of biblical theological evidence and wrestling through disagreement. I mean, it almost sounds like that.
15 verses later. <laughs> so fast forward, you can read through those 15 verses. That's where you get into the weeds of what was the biblical, theological, exegetical points of view that were expressed and eventually won out. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So we're celebrating Missio Seminary 50 years. 40 years ago at Grace Bible Church, we had a church split over this very issue. Acts 15 says, church leadership, then the whole church, not the other way around. 40 years ago, there was a split. And part of it were people who said it should be the church taking it to the, to the elders. That 40 years ago, the church split was over. No, actually, elder-led congregation participating in. Was I part of that? No, actually, I, for the record, I was a teenager, all right? That's Bob Mace, Glenn Mangum, Heston Swartley, Norm Hartzell. In fact, and now as I think about it, there was one young buck on the elder board, at the, younger than you, Dave, uh, really young guy, uh, Forget his name. Remember Art? Oh, Don Dressler. He's still around? Anyway, in hindsight, I look back and I think, you know, godly men who went through Sheol through that split. But anyway, after much debate, after much debate, the general the uh, biblical theological line of reasoning that won out here was, there's Genesis 17, but there's also Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcision is always supposed to be an outward expression of an inward uh, severing of the heart, repentance of the heart. In fact, you look closely, yeah, there's Ezekiel 44, but there's also Isaiah 45, and then the the key passage by, put forward by James, the Lord's brother, Jesus' brother, half-brother, <laughs> um, was uh, kind of an obscure passage in Amos 9. And of course, they also had the help of, uh, you know, looking backward through the veil of the temple when Jesus was crucified, just whoosh, ripped open. So there's a big hint that separation between Jew and Gentile, whoosh, is something different is happening. And you've got the teaching of Jesus himself. His first sermon recorded in Luke, Luke 4. Yeah, um, lots, of, lots of widows in Israel during the time of Elijah. Did you ever notice? God didn't send any of his prophets to any of them, but only a Gentile up in Zarephath. Did you ever notice? Lots of lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha. God didn't send his prophet to any of them to heal them, but only this Syrian, pagan, Gentile commander named Naaman. So you do have Jesus' hermeneutic applied to 
1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 5, that essentially says from Luke's fourth, fourth chapter, Luke's gospel, look carefully, God's always had his eye on the Gentiles. Of course, we see it easy, being Gentiles ourselves, and with the hindsight and camping in New Testament scriptures for a while. But this was difficult to wrestle through. Seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. To affirm what God was doing through Paul and Barnabas out on the frontier. Bringing Gentiles in. And they sent this letter. And this is what the letter. <clears throat> and I'm gonna, I, I am going to reinforce this, juice this up a little. This letter inspired inerrantly by the Holy Spirit letter that's now incorporated into the canon of Scripture. Can I say that? After this vigorous debate and wrestling with these biblical principles and concepts, the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture says this, having become of one mind. Turns out that was tough, hard work to get to that one mind. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And what they decide is a sorting out of greater matters and lesser matters. Gentiles, you don't have to become Jewish to be properly disciples of Christ, people of God in Christ. Eventually, Paul's going to expand that in his letters because there apparently continued to be a minority sect that continued to disagree with us. And that's why Paul has to write Galatians, Colossians, Philippians. But eventually, Paul's going to just spell it out and say, if you're baptized into Christ, you're circumcised enough. You're, you're part of the seed of Abraham. That's seed of Abraham enough, enough if you are in Christ. Now, that's the issue of Acts 15. But here's the hermeneutic, or here's the theological point. There's a redemptive progress of revelation. You can't just, you know, last week, it was Deuteronomy 24 in Matthew 19. This week, it's Genesis 17 in Acts 15. You can't just atomize, extract, and absolutize. I know you think you're just defending scripture, but you can't just atomize, extract, and absolutize. You've got to follow the plot line of the biblical progress of redemption. Because it's a plot line that has a goal to it. <clears throat> that in the case of Jesus and the bringing the Gentiles and Jews together into one body, Paul tells us in one place was not even anticipated by the angels, much less any interpreter of Scripture. So the phenomenon that Jesus alerts us to in Matthew 19, we see again in Acts 15. The biblical plot line conveys a progress of redemption and biblical theology itself. The theology conveyed in the Bible itself suggests a topography, a terrain of Scripture, that it's wrong-headed to read it as though it's just one cut of cloth, a set of axiomatic absolutes that you just extract. 
There are ideals and there are concessions. Because God is willing to meet us where we are. He doesn't leave us where we are, but he meets his people, he meets cultures, he meets societies broken, depraved, and sinful as we are where we are. But he doesn't leave us where we are, but he does take us from there. Greater matters, lighter matters. The tension, the biblical tension between redemptive grace and righteous justice. Those three sets were last week. This week, the brief time we have left, we look at more clear versus less clear. Well, how clear is biblical teaching? Does this mean anything goes? I mean, we, I mean I've got an opinion, you've got an opinion, we've all got an opinion. How do we sort this out? What biblical truth should we hold as clearly taught by Scripture and regard as uncompromisingly absolute? Well, if we look at the not just history of redemption, but the history of the church, that it's true has been too often characterized by division and strife. There have been points in church history in which Christians, fellow, fellow believers in Christ, have actually killed one another over their disagreements. Nevertheless, look carefully. And you see that God's people over time, from the early church to the current day, have a core set of biblical truths that pretty much, virtually, all Bible-believing, sincere, studied Christians affirm as clearly taught by Scripture over time. Those are dogmas or as my practical theology colleagues like to call them, those are the absolutes. And then doctrines. That's uh, convictions of a strand of Christianity uh, and then opinions. So dogmas, those are the absolute tenets of Christianity that are considered central to the faith, so greater matters, and affirmed by the vast majority of God's people over time. Conviction is a whole community, not just one person, but also not the whole church. But a church, a denomination, affirms. And then opinions or personal preferences. A lot of life is lived here. You want that to be biblically informed and obediently followed too, but that's the realm of personal, individual, conviction, conclusion, inference, or preference. Missio Seminary, we're an interdenominational seminary. We call this generous orthodoxy. But why do I stay, say historically and theologically established by the work of the Holy Spirit? Why do I attach Holy Spirit to it? Because I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but I'm not the only one indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Shoot, I'm not even the only one in this room <laughs> indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So... The Holy Spirit indwells the entire body of believers. And hopefully at points fills and leads. And so you can tell how clearly and firmly the Holy Spirit has led by the consistency 
with which spirit-indwelt, spirit-filled, spirit-led people have been led to these conclusions, not only today, but over time. And then segments of. Uh, those are the doctrines. Our church, Grace Bible Church, has certain doctrines that aren't shared by other Bible-believing Christians. They're brothers and sisters in Christ over there at the Lutheran Church, you know, over there uh, at the Presbyterian Church. But um, these are truths that we hold to be worth preserving, defending as an individual church body. Those are the doctrines. Maybe an illustration. Baptism. Every Bible-believing Christian body recognizes the importance of baptism. Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Lutheran, did I leave anybody out? Mennonite. Everybody has baptism. The doctrinal divisions are over subjects and mode. Subjects. Who should be the proper recipient of baptism? An infant and mode. Sprinkled or a person who's old enough to articulate their faith by immersion. That's where the doctrinal divisions are. Well, preferences, well, what are those? That'd be in the realm of how cold is the water, maybe. <laughs> you know, we wear black robes or white robes. Or, you know, but, but, you know, churches can fight over that. I mean, churches can split over that. So, so here's a bottom line point. You may say, I, I've got a strong opinion on this. I've got, wait a minute, wait, you didn't hear me. I, not only do I have an opinion, I feel strongly about that opinion. We, you know what? You're entitled to that. But no one of us can regard our opinion or preference as an absolute. You need the whole body of Christ for that. And by the way, so that's the conservative admonition. You know, the admonition to conservatives. And, by the same token, if I were speaking to a more progressive liberal church, I'd make this point. By the same token, no person, no church, can suggest an absolute is merely a matter of opinion. See, there's equal and opposite errors there. All right. Landing the plane. But now you say, I feel strongly about such and such, or I'm really bothered by such and such going to hit this really quickly. It's a number of possibilities as to why you feel this strongly, why you feel bothered. It could be, it could be that you're representing the voice of wisdom and godliness. That's possible. There have been instances in scripture. I mean, 1 Corinthians 5, that's a scary one. Apparently the Corinthian Christians presumably in the name of grace and love and mercy, were not only not rebuking, but esteeming a person who was engaged and engrossed in sexual debauchery. As far as I'll go, you read 1 Corinthians 5. But Paul says, what are you doing? What are you doing? How can you tolerate that? So it's possible you could have even a group of Christians that well-meaningly or tolerating or engaging themselves in some sort of error or sin. The Bereans are nothing but commended for checking up 
Is what the apostles, what, what the apostles are teaching on is that really true? The Bereans aren't rebuked for that follow-up engagement study. They're commended for it. Maybe you're that. Maybe you have a legitimate point of concern. In fact, Act 6 is actually, actually the language of complaint is used. You may have a legitimate complaint. I give an Old Testament example, New Testament example. I don't know when the... I don't know when the last time we had a sermon or a Sunday school lesson on Numbers 27. It's, it's kind of tucked away in the section of Scripture nobody reads. But anyway, uh, a, a group of, uh, of daughters of Manasseh came forward and said, because the, the land was being patriarchally distributed, and their patriarch had died. And they said, that shouldn't mean that we're shortchanged on our land allotment. Moses doesn't know what to do. We're told in Numbers 27, Moses takes it to the Lord, and the Lord said, they're actually right. <laughs> They've actually got a legitimate complaint. Acts 6, more familiar, New Testament, <laughs> more where we read. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Greek uh, believers said our widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. And Actually, you know what? You've got a legitimate complaint. That could be you. You've got a legitimate complaint that you're concerned about. You're trying to bring it forward in a godly way. Could be. Like unto it, you're understandably anxious about a legitimately stressful trial or transition. I know Philippians 4 says be anxious for nothing. But there are periods in biblical history in which a godly prophet like Elijah shoot even godly jesus in luke 22 is sweating sweat drops of blood and god the father doesn't say to him what are you doing suck it up suck it up yeah you you know what you're supposed to do just 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 skip through the lilies (laughs) no jesus is all for the plan but this is a legitimately stressful period of trial that God is calling him to. And the history of God's people is filled with instances in which it's not a matter of obedience. But we live in a hostile, painful world that sometimes is stressful. Let me just say this. I know my, my time is fleeting. <clears throat> We're in a momentous situation in our church life. I don't think I'm even the first person to say that to you this morning. Stakes are high, y'all. They, they are. And it's pretty natural when you recognize that we're at a crossroads and we've got a big decision that's going to affect all of our futures to have a certain butterfly in your stomach about it. God's people have had that set of angst, consternation, That troubledness of spirit may not be God calling you to glob a contrary view or point of dissension. It it may just be the godly wrestling with, yeah, we don't want to make a mistake here. We don't. And, And some of this wrestling is shared by godly people. Now, a little less positive, it may be a weaker brother, weaker sister, or 
inconsiderate stronger brother or sister um, situation. 1 Corinthians 8. I don't see how a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ could... Now you fill in the blank today. In 1 Corinthians 8, here's how that sentence ended. I don't see how a genuine believer in Jesus Christ could ever eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. And Paul, through 1 Corinthians 8, sorts it out both ways. He says, both have a point, but in the end, there is such a thing as demonic forces and whatnot, but laying food before a stone thing, that's actually not going to do anything to the food. But not everyone can in good conscience still eat it. Paul ends up saying in 1 Corinthians 8 and a similar issue in Romans 14, it far more important than who's right about the specific in this, who's most faithful in the conclusion is how you treat one another in the midst of the disagreement. And then this, I actually ran out of block. There's a lot of biblical teaching on this. Because it could be that you're not representing the voice of wisdom and godliness and truth. It could be that you're causing unhelpful dissension or ungodly strife. And you press that, you're, you actually get into the realm of sin. Here's what some of these passages characterize this realm. You may be a grumbler, an aggravating griper, or manifesting an argumentative or what Scripture, Old Testament and New, calls a contentious, a disagreeable, looking to contend, looking for a fight kind of a spirit. By the time you get to James 3, it's actually put this way. You could actually be being used of the enemy to cause discouragement among the hardworking faithful. In other words, the leaders, the, the people that are work, who've got real skin in the game as to make this a godly and successful enterprise, you could be bringing unnecessary discouragement to them or just stoking division. Strife in the body. All right. So you feel strongly. You're bothered. Got a number of options. I'll avoid dwelling on the point that this could look a lot like the terrain of Scripture slide <laughs> of ideals, concessions, greater matters, lighter matters, righteous uh, justice versus redemptive grace. But there are definitely parallels. So at the end of the letter to the Thessalonians, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to say this, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. That's atactus. That's those out of line, out of alignment, is uh, what that word means. Taktos is orderliness um, or, or discipline. Those out of line. Admonish those out of line. Are you unruly? Are you, 
Are you out of line? May I just ask that gently in the Sunday morning sermon. Do you need the church leadership to admonish you? Just ask him. Encourage the faint-hearted. That's Alagasus case, Asukus. That's uh, short, short of soul. <laughs> um, uh, reduced uh, of uh, spirit. That's people that are discouraged. I mean, so, so t- tempted or struggling with, I'm just tired, give up. I mean, <clears throat> Dave Dunbar a month or two ago talked about uh, two times in his life when he found it difficult to get out of bed and go to work. That's, 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 that's this. That's uh, sukus. That's someone in need of encouragement. And they're obedient. I mean, Encourage them. Help the weak. Uh, it's asthenone. It's lacking strength. I want to obey. I'm just not strong enough to try to... Well, help them. In the inspired scripture itself, you get a topography. You get a, a dynamic of pastoral care tools and interpretive principles that require wisdom, faithfulness, the leading of the Holy Spirit to achieve. In the midst of it, be patient with everybody. Father God, we need the wisdom of your spirit as we interpret your word as we sort through what is the right and wise decisions day by day and uh, today particularly father as a church we pray for the leading of your spirit we pray for unity around what is right what is true which what is in accord with your mission that's what we want we we don't want other than that We pray for your leading us to your perfect will and the strength and the courage to obey and follow. Though unpopular, though difficult, though toilsome, troublesome. We pray for the unity of the church, not just worldwide, but here in Satterton, PA at Grace Bible. In Jesus' name.